0: Hello everyone, I am Ben Johnson and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chess Books Recaptured. I am excited to talk this month about one of my favorite chess books of all time, I have to say. And for listeners who haven't heard these podcasts before, every month, and we're, we're hopefully getting back to an every month schedule after some delays, um, we take a break from interviews and uh, review and assess a chess book, try to, try to share some improvement highlights, uh tell you for what rating level the book might be appropriate and just overall assess whether a book is worth one's time. And to join me doing it this month, we have a fellow chess podcaster. He is the host of the Chess Journeys podcast, which I always enjoy. Um, It's uh, basically a weekly conversation with a a chess improver or not improver, as Kevin will explain. And he is also a dad and a history teacher um, and an extreme chess enthusiast. So happy to welcome Kevin to Perpetual Chess. Kevin, What's going on?
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. This uh, this book is both uh, one of my all-time favorites now and a book that was sort of the bane of my existence for years as people kept recommending it, and I kept trying it, and I couldn't get into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the constant problem in the chess world of if you ask someone, an experienced chess player, their favorite chess books, they don't necessarily filter for rating. Um so you probably hear this one a lot because it's such a classic, but, but honestly, Kevin, you're, you're like 17 something USCF, I believe. Um, and that's about where one should start with this book. I would say maybe 1600, um, which, you know, for your chess rapid or whatever, that would be more like 1900 chess rapid. Um, that's about where one should start with it. I don't, I I personally don't think one would be totally lost beneath that, but it's, it's advanced concepts. I mean all the games obviously are won not by someone hanging a piece or falling for a basic tactic there there are these beautiful grinds. So what were your early um, what were your early less positive experiences with the book Kevin?
2: Yeah, so I, I remember um, I was looking I was looking to figure out end games because I knew nothing and people were like you should read end game strategy. And this was a time when I did not know what the term opposition was and I was like okay. This is the book to teach me endgame, <laughs> right. and I looked. I read the first chapter, which is called something like "Endgame Principles," and it gives you no principles for the endgame. All it tells you is endgames are different. And I was like, "What is happening?" And I finished the whole chapter. I learned nothing about endgame principles or the basics of endgames, and was very confused. And said, uh, "I don't know what is happening with people recommending this book, but this book is not for me." And I I tried it you know, about three different times at different points in my journey, each time forgetting that first chapter and then being completely turned off by that first chapter. Do you remember that chapter and how empty it is of chess principles? It it was really uh, disconcerting.
0: Yeah, for me, it's a different experience. I don't, I was trying to think back in, in our discussion prior to recording of what rating I was when I first read this, but I would guess I was at least 1800. And my, I just loved it from the start. And as I reread it, there are a few flaws with the book, which we'll, which we'll discuss, but, but even rereading it all these years later, I still loved it. So yeah, I think a lot of it just comes down to to your chess experience. So to build on what you said, Kevin, uh, for anyone listening, I would say make sure you've read like up to the sixteen or 1,800 level of uh, Silman's Endgame Manual, for example. Um, certainly, you want to be familiar with concepts like opposition or the Luc- Lucina position, the bridge position in Rook and Pawn Endgames, um, the Philidor position. You don't need to know them cold, but you you should at least know what they are before you consider a book like this. Um, you know, 100 Endgames You Must Know obviously gets name-checked a lot here, and it's a great course, but... Y- you don't need to complete that. It's more like um, you know the basics. You know what opposition is. You know what distant opposition is. And you're rated, again, I think ideally around 1600 tournament chess. Um, and then it's a fantastic book. But before then, you might have an experience like Kevin did where it's, uh, where it's counterproductive. What what other endgame stuff had you done, Kevin? Uh, I guess not much, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, but before I had done nothing. And then I realized this book was not for me and like you just said I read Silman's complete endgame course up to about 1600 1800 and what I realized is what I now have are some cool building blocks I yeah. no opposition if we randomly get a philidor I'm in business but as we transition to the endgame I had no idea how to like actually play an endgame I just had a couple building blocks that I could slot in if they happened to come up
0: Yeah, and that's one thing about these technical endgame books. I call the ones that tell you how to play a certain position technical. I'm not the only one who calls them this, but just for the sake of of clarity. Um, But these technical endgame positions, I mean, you can drill them and drill them and drill them. But then when you get them in the game, you need to be able to identify them in the moment. And that is like uh, degrees of difficulty harder. So that's one reason that, that I often end up advocating for books like this such as an end game strategy of course the other one that i mention all the time is capablanca's uh, best chess endings by irving chernov absolute classic um with with a sort of similar spirit but there aren't that many like that right kevin you've been saying that that this book struck you as very unique
2: yeah definitely i have i've looked at so many end game books in this trying to figure out just what to do so i the next step was okay I've read a bunch of Silman. He's very confident that I should be good at endgames now. And I'm not. Um, So then I'm going to read 100 Endgames You Must Know. And that was like this massively overwhelming experience. (laughs) It was like, it actually was like a thousand endgames you must know. And they didn't feel like endgames I had to know to have the basics. It felt like really advanced stuff very quickly. And as I'm going into these deep rook pawn endgames, I still have in the back of my head, but Kevin, you have no idea how to play end games, right? Like there's there's eight pawns on the board, two rooks, and each side has a knight. What do you do? It's not in this hundred end games, you must know. And I had no idea where to even begin. You know what I would do usually, Ben? I'd do that. What's that? I heard you're supposed to bring the king to the center. <laughs> and I would just right. start aimlessly moving my king to the center because that was the one principle I knew.
0: Okay, well yeah, and this book is chock full of little mantras and principles and he he does a nice job repeating them. So hopefully you feel a little bit less lost now, Kevin.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm going to go so far as to say this book has transformed completely how I even play chess, right? So not only has it given me ideas of how to play the end game, some principles of how to play the end game, but then those have trickled down to my middle game play. As before, I knew, like, hey, you don't want to have double pawns going into the end game. That would be bad. And and I would think, sure, that totally makes sense. And then I would get to an end game and go, "I, I don't know, like, how this works or how I'm supposed to exploit this. But now, even from the early middle game, anytime I can make a weakness, I'm thinking, ooh, I've made three weaknesses already. If I could turn this into an end game, I would be in business. Or, conversely, if I have a bunch of weaknesses... Now I'm thinking, oh, I got to do something big in the middle game because if we go to an end game and my situation looks like this, I'm in huge trouble. And now compare that to before when we get to an end game, and I would just go king goes to the center. Like these are these are you know earth shattering differences here.
0: Yeah, and he does define the concept of a weakness because I think everyone can identify a weak pawn. You know, double isolated pawns, doubled pawns, backward pawns, isolated pawns, etc. But he. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to the principle of two weaknesses, uh, one of his um, many um, sort of uh, prevailing themes of the book. But he also defines a weakness as it can be, he says, I quote, it can be much wider than a lone pawn, which can be subject to attack. It can be the occupation of an open file, an enemy outside past pawn, that means one on your team, uh, an immobile piece, a king which is cut off and so on. So for one thing, this broader definition of weaknesses, I think probably you, you did, and I, I do find find helpful.
2: Yeah, it it's so fascinating too, because I, I'm still not a great chess player, right? And so he shows a position, and I look at it, I'm like, okay, there's a weakness here. I can see that this backwards pawn is what we're attacking. But then as the game develops, it's very clear that it is not enough for them just to have that one weakness. And it's always fascinating to me how he shows how this other weakness gets created, which often still seems to me almost by magic, right? It's like your pawns are perfect, but when you attack it with this bishop and then you reroute the knight over here and then you blind your opponent with some waiting moves for a few moves to to lull them into a false sense of security. Then you strike and you make the second weakness. And it's just like mind-blowing sometimes.
0: Yeah. So probably self-evident. That's what the principle of two weaknesses mean. Often one weakness is not enough. And if you think about like military strategy or a board game like risk you know that's often a concept that comes up in those i mean if you're just like even if you have in risk like an army game if you have the army dwindled but they're hunkered down it's tough to it's tough to crack them but and similarly it's like attacking from different flanks in in a battle um so it makes sense but again, it's the fact that they give it a language. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know to what extent he deserves the full credit. We'll get into that um, when we dive a little deeper into the background, but there's like a big Alakine quote, this beautiful endgame that Alakine plays where he has a quote from, I guess, al excuse me, um, where al breaks down his strategy in full and then Sheroshevsky jumps in and says like, oh, and by the way, that was the principle of two weaknesses. And you're like, oh yeah, that, that was the principle of two weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But until you're thinking, um, until you have the language, it can be hard to Im- implement the strategy. So I think, are, are you finding that helpful in terms of like forming a plan when you play now, Kevin?
2: Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, just even the idea of formulating a plan is transformative for me, right? Now, when I enter an end game, I try to stop myself and say, what is your plan here? You're no longer playing the same chess game you were. What's your plan? And that's what I'm thinking. Where are the weaknesses? How many are there? If there's only one, that's not enough. Whereas before I would have assumed one would easily be enough. I have the open file. Boom, I'm going to win this. Uh, but now I'm thinking that's not enough. And I'm trying to figure out if there's not another weakness, where can I create one? What can I do um, to make my opponent's position vulnerable? And, and I'm doing that right from the first moment the endgame starts instead of kind of letting it develop. And then going, wait, we should probably figure out what to do here.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's the quote from Alakan, which I think is representative of a lot of the sort of end games you see in this and obviously again, if you study someone like Capablanca or Rubinstein's games, um, you you'll see these sort of plans in action, but he says, the play in the ending is by no means so simple as it appears, especially for for Black's plan, which will prove completely successful. It consists of the following parts: one exchange one pair of books. Rooks, excuse me. Two, transfer the king to e6, where it will be defended by the e-pawn and can prevent the in- invasion of the enemy rook. Three, operate with the rook on the g file and advance the h-pawn. So that's what Kevin was saying about where you're creating the weakness. Um, four, after this, white's king and possibly his bishop will be tied to the defense against the invasion of the rooks. Black, meanwhile, five, by advancing his A and B pawns, will sooner or later also have open files on the queen side. Six, since at this point, since the king will still be on the opposite wing, white should be able to prevent the invasion of the first or second rank And then he goes on to say, it must be admitted that that had White from the beginning realized there was a real danger of him losing this ending by careful defense, he might have been able to save the king. But what happened was that Black played according to a definite plan, whereas White played only with the conviction that the game was bound to end in a draw the result was an instructive series of typical patterns and stratagems much more useful to students of the game than so-called brilliancies of short one-sided games and there's just lots of examples like that i mean obviously when you see it it's more powerful but to have a 6 prong plan like it's it's amazing and and they make it look easy so i mean i'm you know uh, i'm a bit higher rated than than you kevin but i'm still not at a level where like i'm routinely kind of pulling off that mm-hmm. that sort of trick but it's just such a pleasure to play through and to learn from
2: yeah and, and i have found myself doing things like that now they don't always work out um, because i can't see everything as clearly but going into an end game i'm trying to do that i'll say okay step one i'm going to take this open file step two um they <clears throat> have a bishop that's going to be a bad bishop and a good bishop and i have a good bishop and a knight i'm going to try to trade the good bishops mm-hmm. by going here leaving them with a bad bishop. And then, um, you know, my king is closer to the center and I can do this thing. And half the time, by the way, I'm wrong and it all collapses and falls apart. But I'm trying to emulate that in my games and it's really been helpful. Um, That's According to the only metric I have for this, which is unfortunate, by the way, any programmers out there, make like a chess.com puzzles thing, but for end games. Uh, But I am um, using aim chess and... A month ago, it said you lose all your end games. Winning even or losing, when you enter the end game, you basically lose them all. And now <laughs> if I'm winning or even equal, I win almost every end game. So it's been this just huge transformation for how my end game plays work. Now when I'm losing, I still lose every game. I don't know what's going on there. That's another story.
0: Okay, that'll be in the in the next book, I guess. But but yeah, I mean that's that's great to hear. And, you know, another another concept that comes up sort of inextricably linked to the idea of the principle of two weaknesses and hearing a plan like that of six phases is the the other primary mantra, I would say, which is do not hurry, yeah. um, which is just this beautiful idea that, you know, I mean, obviously, if you play through the, the games of a Paul Morphy or, you know, trace the development of chess, uh, the beginning of the game is a sprint. You know, if, if you don't get your pieces out, you're in trouble. Um, but in the end games, I mean, if you get to a discussion of sort of um, uh, static versus dynamic weaknesses, um, the, the, the contours have been defined in the position and often the weaknesses that, that your opponent has will be of a static nature. So um, you kind of have to shift your mindset from playing for um, playing for a race um, to like making sure everything's perfect, you know, and there's the examples again from like Olf Anderson and Rubenstein and they're just, they just make sure before they implement their like multi-step plan, they just make sure every piece is where they want it because often they have an advantage such that their opponent can't do the same thing. So it's another sort of uh, prevailing theme that makes, uh, makes the games super instructive to play through.
2: Yeah. And it's what I'm worst at by far. That is such a hard concept to get. Do not hurry. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I know you have a plan and it's a good plan, but you know, don't enact it yet because you can slightly improve your position and your opponent can't do anything. And you're going, okay, okay. So every time I try to do that, I look at the board and I go, my opponent can do nothing. I'm going to do this little waiting move thing to improve my position slightly. And my opponent goes, really? I can do nothing? I think right. you are mistaken on that one, sir. And then they crush me.
0: yeah i mean and there's a tension you know what you mentioned kevin about racing your king to the center of the board often that's going to be a correct strategy and and that like you know your king's basically trying to stake out some territory so you know whoever gets to to midfield first might have an advantage so in that case you kind of do have to hurry but it's more like when everything else is defined then you see these 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 uh great players are amazing at um really making sure everything is lined up before they uh, they go on to the the next multi-step or the next the next phase of their multi-step plan. Um, so, Kevin, I want to take a break and hear from our sponsors. You already mentioned our friends at Aim Chess, which, of course, you can use the code Perpetual Thirty if you sub. But what else can you use, Kevin?
2: Um, that's it. That's the only code you should <laughs> um, use.
0: <laughs> no, it's great that they also sponsor Chess Journeys, which I always enjoy listening to. So, let's take it to a break, and then we'll be back in a minute listeners our friends at aimchess.com have a fun new feature that i want to tell you about it is called the aim chess recap if you're familiar with spotify wrapped it's basically the chess version of that your chess year in review they have a new design to make the user experience more fun and they tell you all kinds of stats from your from your year the ones you might be used to like how you do with certain openings certain colors against who you played the most how many minutes you played the total year and then some fun stuff like the total amount of smothered mates you played, the number of on passants taken, uh, all of your missed mate and ones. Okay, maybe that one's not as fun. And if you see something you want to share, you can easily share it on social media. So that's called the AIM chess recap. Link is in the show description. It's free to check out. And then if you do decide to subscribe to AIM chess, use the code perpetual30 to save 30%. All right, let's head back to Perpetual Chess.
1: If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down.
0: And we are back. And I didn't even say the name of the author yet, which is a bit of an oversight. So, of course, it's Mikhail Shereshevsky, Belarusian chess master and trainer. Last I saw, he's now based in Bulgaria, um, mentored by Boloslavsky, one of these sort of OG Soviet type players. But um, and he's written a couple other books as well. Um, the this book was originally published in the USSR in 1981, translated to English in 1985. Got a nice forward from Yusupov. Um, and, but the provenance of this book is slightly unknown, I would say. I mean, obviously, um, he was a trainer, an amazing trainer. He had a compilation of positions. But doing all the, the research that I tend to do for these uh, book recaps, it seems some people have said it was like he and his um, colleagues compiled this material together and um, I found a discussion on the uh, chess book collectors Facebook group where GM Jakob Agard uh, of quality chess books, who obviously knows his stuff was saying um, the original book by Shereshevsky was based on a, this is a quote was based on a lecture series by Mark Deveretsky in the mid 1970s. Shereshevsky asked for permission. So it's good that he used the material. Um, but he's saying it's from Deveretsky's material again, take that for what it's worth. Um, I, I don't know its provenance, but I will say, like, you know, this came from the Soviet Union. There was a very obviously collective mindset um, and there were chess trainers everywhere. And it was being, you know, the materials were being sort of uh, disseminated from the top down. So Shereshevsky's name is on the book, but uh, but he probably wasn't the only one who contributed to this, but it's not super important anyway. The The important thing is that the material is amazing. Um, and we should say it's translated by Ken Neat, um, legendary translator, and uh, the prose is beautiful. So um, I don't, you know, obviously he deserves some, some credit as well. Did you enjoy the writing in the book, Kevin?
2: Yeah, I found it to be clear and precise. Um, you already quote, quoted one of the, um, you know, pe- people he quotes. And I think it's really important where he does that occasionally where he'll say, we're actually going to use the analysis of this person here um, because they've done a great job and then he'll supplement it a bit. There isn't a lot of extraneous stuff. Like it doesn't remind me of my system at all where, you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to throw in this random illusion that's going to make no sense in a hundred years from now. It's It all feels timely. Like if you told me it was written last week, I would believe that.
0: Yeah, there's one exception to that, which I have to say, Kevin, I didn't catch this when I, the first time I read this book, I I don't know exactly um, what I was rated or what year it was, but I remember it was revelatory. But this time, the only ebook right now that I could find is on Kindle, and I already had a paper copy, so I just rolled with that. So there's no move trainer type um type uh, way to play through it that I could find. But there are Lee Chess studies, um, non- nothing that I could find that was 100% comprehensive. But if you Google a given game um, so that you can read through the book and play through it on your device, uh, there's a good chance you'll find it in chessgames.com or you'll find it already in Lee Chess. I put up some chunks myself um, on Lee Chess and the stuff that I was working through. But anyway, looking at it this way, what that meant is I had the engine on and Kevin, man, are there a lot of errors in this book? <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't, of course. Now, obviously, full full caveat: if if I didn't have the engine on, I would have caught like maybe five percent of them if I'm lucky, you know. Um, but but when you have the engine on, a lot of the time it's kind of just like mocking some of the um, analysis. Now, the good news is our friends at New In Chess slash Chessable have a new version coming out in May. Uh, fully updated, additional material. There's going to be a video version. And and I only found this out after Kevin and I agreed to do this and then reached out to them to get a few more details. And yeah, so it sounds amazing. So, I mean, anyone in the proper reading range listening to this, uh, full-throated recommendation for this book. But if I were you, I would wait till May um, before picking it up because it'll probably be... On the new in chess reader, if you prefer to just read it as a book with the sort of playthrough option, or of course on chessable or video chessable, which obviously could be amazing. So uh, that's something to look forward to. But yeah, it has to be said: tons of engine errors in this. In I mean, tons of errors that the engine spotted uh, in the analysis.
2: I kind of feel like a little kid, and you just told me Santa isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, hear, I wish yeah. you hadn't. First of all, and second of right. all, I'm devastated. Now, I, for me, what's interesting is it's not about the engine analysis, right? It's exactly really just about the ideas and the concepts. I I actually don't really care if the precise moments are wrong, but I feel like it's the overall ideas that I'm taking away. That is really interesting, though. I will say this though: one of the things I love so much about this book is the length. And while new material sounds wonderful, um. I love the idea that it's something like 211 pages and feels manageable from the first time you pick it up. Whenever I look at something like Deveretsky's manual, I just look at it and go, no, I'm not I'm not doing that. That's that's it's too big. It's too long. I won't be able to make my way through it. Whereas endgame strategy just feels so manageable. You hold it in your little hands and you're like, "Ooh, it's just the right size. It's not that big. I can make it through this thing.
0: Yeah. It's not quite on the simple chess scale of like, like, you know, you learn something and you finished the book and you banged it out in two weeks. I mean, obviously I do this every month and for me, I, I highlight, I did about 20 pages a day over, um, over a 10 day sprint. Um, and you know, that's with days off when I was playing a tournament and stuff like that sprinkled in. Um, but I would say that's not optimal, (laughs) like probably Mm -hmm. optimal. But again, I had already read this book. Um, I would say optimal, but you could do it 45 minutes a day for 10 days and you'd get great benefit. And then, Kevin, as I know you're planning, then you could do it again,
2: right? Yeah. So I started this book for real December 4th. I've done it every day since then, and I'm only at page 185. Don't worry, listeners, I I skimmed the rest of it just to make sure there were no surprises. Um, And I have done a total of 24 and a half hours so far. So I'm really taking my time. It takes me about 15 minutes to play through each game. And I'm trying to do it in this take two to three months. And that way it really filters in. I feel like when I read a book in a week or two, it comes and it's gone. But when I'm in it and and simmering in and stewing in it for two or three months, it really seeps in a lot more than the quick sprint does. At least that's been my own process.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And and to, to circle back to what you were saying about <clears throat> the engine stuff not being important, Kevin. I I agree full stop. The only caveat I wanted to add was like sometimes there's like a transition to a King and Pawn Endgame. Um, and like, you know, as as any chess teacher will tell their student, like when there's a transition to um, to a simplified situation like that, that's when like the result could very easily swing. And there was one or two examples where he gets those wrong. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully you'll get, but then there was also wow. like, there's this queen and pawn ending in the game, like uh golden Kurzabov, Cur- where you have to do this, like, five move maneuver to basically lose a tempo in order to, to sacrifice a queen under more favorable circumstances. And he like crushes that analysis. Mm. He has it perfect. So there is some really impressive analysis in this. It's just inevitable with any old book that, that there would be mistakes. And as Kevin says, that's not really what this book is about. It's about how to implement a plan. Plus if you all wait till may, you'll get the uh, you'll get the newer version. Um, anyway, so, um,
2: it's so what else do we
0: have to say about this book kevin
2: well real quick about the engine stuff i i'm doing it as kind of a guesser move for the side that's going to win um and i'm usually wrong and now now i have in the back of my head am i usually wrong sheriff sure, <laughs>
0: yeah you were right every time or have sure. i been
2: right all this time and i am yeah. the superior end game player
0: yeah and the other thing is like i'm using the web engine on leeches which is pretty good but you're not running it at like a huge depth so there was also one or two cases where the, the engine was initially wrong and then you play through the i mean the, sorry the analysis was initially wrong but then if you play through the analysis the engine is the one that flips oh. so um so the plot thickens you know yeah. you have to you have to be careful and certainly um yeah it can't be too too judgmental again the, the, that's not the uh the primary thrust of the book but um but definitely looking forward to the expanded and uh, updated uh, variation, and um, Shereshevsky himself will will be working on it. so uh, so should be exciting.
2: It's um, amazing. For some reason, I just assumed Shereshevsky was no longer an active or potentially alive person because I hadn't seen anything from this individual. So this is really exciting. I wonder if there's a bunch of other works that he's, you know, considering releasing that maybe we're only in Russia or only in his files. And he's thinking, Ooh, maybe I should release this as well. So, you know, anyone who knows him, let him, let him know we want all of his stuff.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the Chessable people obviously know him, so he's not, not so unreachable. Um, maybe, maybe he'll be on a perpetual chess or, or chess journeys. I don't know how his, his English is. Obviously the book was originally um, written, written in Russian, but yeah, I mean, in, there isn't that much online from, from him. He's an, he's an untitled player. And from what I'd read, he, um, he is like 22 something FIDE. So obviously a very good player, but, um, from what I read, he did spend some years away from chess. I mean, he moved to Bulgaria and worked in it's a business. So who knows what that means, but apparently he's doing more chess stuff again now. So yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh, the more we hear from him the better as far as I'm concerned. I mean, this is definitely a first ballot Hall of Fame chess book as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah. Fascinating stuff to hear that there's a new version coming out. He's still involved. Like th- these are all new uh twists and turns that I was unaware of.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's amazing for for how well known this book is how little information is is available online and of course that means you haven- you can't believe everything you read when it's not from like ten different sources, so ben,
2: um, I'm going to tell you a rumor I heard. I <laughs> right. wrote this book 30 right. years ago.
0: Yeah, it looks like he's uh 71 years years of age. If I found okay. the correct free day page. Um. All right. Well, we're going to take one more break, and then we're going to get into some of our favorite and the few least favorite things from this book. Perpetual Chess is proud, as always, to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Of course, Chessable is constantly dropping new courses. Some of their latest include Keep It Simple for Black by I.M. Christoph Selecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained. It gives an entire repertoire for black no matter what you face, and Christoph is always thorough yet not overloading you with variations. There is also a brand new Lifetime Repertoire's Berlin Defense from former U.S. champion GM Sam Shanklin. I hate playing against the Berlin, so I'd rather you not get that one. But hey, if you're looking to learn it, of course, Sam Shanklin does not mess around with his course offerings. And of course, whatever you choose to study on Chessable, you can utilize their proprietary move trainer technology to help you remember the lines you learn. So be sure, as always, to go to chessable.com and take a look at what's new.
2: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group.
1: Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: And we are back. And before we dive into the favorites, I did just want to read the names of the 13 chapters just to give listeners a little um, concept of sort of the type of material you would be dealing with, and then we can pivot from there to uh, which ones we like the best. So here are the 13 chapters, basic principles of endgame play, centralization of the king, the role of pawns in the endgame, the problem of exchanging, do not hurry, schematic thinking, the principle of two weaknesses, the struggle for the initiative, suppressing the opponent's counterplay, positions with an isolated D pawn, the two bishops, the three to two queenside pawn majority and complex endings, which is where everything else they couldn't fit anywhere else. Yeah, goes.
2: that should be called miscellaneous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so,
0: what's your favorite, Kevin?
2: Uh, okay. So, my favorite by far, and there are many good chapters, is schematic thinking. Um, that you read a quote already from that chapter. And that's the chapter I feel like that does the best job of really laying out how you should think about end games sort of in its entirety. Not all end games are as simple as that where you can just from the moment the end game starts isolate six mini plans that you should be enacting and with a goal of how you're going to string them together. But after reading that chapter, that is where it all really clicked for me that end games are different and the second we enter an end game, I should be thinking about what my plans are. I shouldn't just be thinking about centralizing my king. I shouldn't just be thinking about a weakness. I shouldn't just be thinking about that isolated d pawn. But I should be have a master plan that I am working with if I want to win this endgame. And that was amazing. And and like that quote you read, there's about five others like that in there where lists step one, step two, step three, and and I couldn't understand all those steps, you know, but I knew they were there and that this. This is what separates me from someone who can really understand an endgame—that they have a master plan in mind—and that was really um, a big moment for me.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to see. It it is kind of like a magic trick <laughs> when you see it in action. Yeah. And and yeah, again, I'm I can my plans don't run as smoothly, although certainly, um, you know, I've. I've benefited from this and tried to create a second weakness and even sometimes succeeded, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to behold the uh, the true masters uh, in in action in, in these end games. Yeah. And that's one of my favorites as well, Kevin. I mean, my, I don't have any super original choices. I mean, my three favorite chapters are the ones you just mentioned, the principle of two weaknesses and do not hurry all of which we've already talked about, but those are sort of like, you know, those are just like, if you do some sort of word association with those with this book um th- those obviously come to the fore i mean the, the the one other one that i thought that was really good is uh the chapter the the problem of exchanging um yeah. where he 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 identifies like when you're trying to decide about a certain minor piece exchange or when you should trade rooks and sort of uh gives you some guidelines and some amazing examples of uh good bishops versus Bad uh, bishops and bishops versus knights. And overall, I would say this book, again, might have been mildly ahead of its time, although certainly uh, uh, theory was like chess knowledge was trending in the direction of favoring the bishop versus the knight. But overall, there's one or two examples of the knights reigning supreme, but it's pretty much an ode to the bishop as well, I would say.
2: Yeah, that that chapter, the two bishops, has just convinced me that in every endgame, bishops are better. And I'm, whenever I enter an endgame and my opponent has two bishops, I'm now terrified. I'm like, well, I'm right. dead. There are no examples where the bishops don't win. Yeah. <laughs> because there is no even yeah. closed positions. And you're like, there's no way the bishops are better here. And he's like, watch this. You open up your <laughs> position ever so slightly. Now the bishops crush everyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the, the bishops, don't, the bishops are, uh, are a strong piece. So there, I think there is at least one example where the knights win. It's obviously same side of the board pawn situation. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, uh, the bishop is not to be trifled with.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's funny because for me, one of my least favorite chapters is the problem of exchanging. And I think this reflects our rating difference because what I got out of that chapter was it is nearly impossible to know when to exchange grandmasters often get it wrong. You, Mr. 1600, have no chance of getting this right. Also, I'm going to give you almost no principles about when you should do it. I'm just going to give you examples and hope that you can extract the principles from those examples. That was my experience with the chapter.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, and again, I'm, I think part of it is like I don't know when I read this, obviously I'm hoping to get better at chess um as we all are but um but it was more just like for enjoyment, so I love the examples there's so many classic games um you know not just in the uh the problem of exchanging uh chapters but like Capablanca alakai and Fischer rushshevsky there's lots of games from zurich nineteen fifty three which i of course uh did a podcast with with Nate Solon on um uh Karpov hort there's just Tons of sort of very famous end games. So um, for me, it's like it's like a com- it's like a beautiful compilation. So um, I agree with you that like maybe if you're looking for something strictly pres- uh, prescriptive, then then that I could see how that would be a little um, a little frustrating. But it also, as you say, it could be a level difference where um, mm. I I I don't need as much explain. Maybe I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, I I think that's another interesting thing about this book that I I feel like on its own, uh, you know, 2000, this might be the only book they need. Someone like me, as I'm reading this, I'm constantly thinking, could you provide a general rule? I would love a bullet point here. This is the takeaway from this game. This is the rule that I'm showing, but they're much broader than that, right? It's more just... Here's the principle of two weaknesses. I'm not now going to give you a list of how to do each of these weaknesses and walk you through it step by step. I'm going to show you an awesome game and you will glean that information.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of it is just the harsh truth that the the chess is only so bullet pointable, you know? I mean... Yeah. but the, the, the literature has improved a lot in terms of distilling lessons as best as as possible. But, but Hey, I mean, there's a reason it's been around for 1600 years and people are still obsessed with it. It's a, it's a complex game, but, but I get what you're saying. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking, you know, you, you want a good bang for your buck on, on the time that you spend studying. And if it's, if there's not like a, um, you know, uh, a sentence that you can just take away and try to apply, it can be challenging. But I, I you know, um, sometimes there's like an osmosis type process that can happen with chess improvement too. So I think as long as you're fully engaged when you're playing through the games, even if you can't summarize what you just learned um, completely, I think that there is an inherent benefit to, to playing through some of these uh, masterful end games.
2: Yeah, I've, I've really been wrestling with this book in particular as the example of is it better to have spoon-fed, um, bullet-pointed examples that are kind of fake, to be honest, because chess doesn't work like that. You can only trick yourself into thinking it works like that, or is it better just to give, have someone give you a broader topic and then just annotate it and show you how that topic works in practice and how it goes in a bunch of different directions, and sometimes it conflicts itself because... That's how chess works. Um, so it, it has been interesting to try to balance that for myself. What is the better approach? And I don't know, but all I know is after playing Shereshevsky, well, going through the book very actively, I feel better. Uh, just little things, um, where to put my rooks. Uh, there's this weird thing, well, weird for me, of sliding the rook behind the king and have like a knight supporting that square and checking. And it doesn't look like it does that much, but it just kind of pushes the king over. And I had never done that check before. And after seeing that happen 50 times in this book, when I see it in games, I just go, I, I can't know that this is right, but GMs do this all the time. So I'll do it. And it just often does something good for me. And it's just that <laughs> osmosis thing, right? I don't fully understand it. I just know this is a reasonable move in this position.
0: Yeah. The, the weakness of the cutoff King as mentioned earlier and yeah. Kevin hearing you talk about it. I mean, I do, I hear a lot of, of self doubt, which I think is, um, is natural. I mean, I, I had an end game a couple, couple months ago, um, where I had an exchange, I was down an exchange, but I had two pawns for it and I was the one who could press for the win and it was a tournament game. So you have a reasonable amount of time to think, and, but I remember seeing the position and thinking, man, if I were Capablanca, I would have it all mapped out. You know, uh-huh. I would know exactly what's going to happen from here. Um, but instead it's like my five, my five stage plan is two stages if I'm lucky, but I was like, all right, well, I have a plan and like, I'll do these two stages and maybe he'll screw up. And he did. So it, it worked out in that case, but, but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't always go as smoothly, but the point is you're, you're moving in the right direction, you know, mm-hmm. um, Every little bit helps and you kind of have to fake it till you make it. So um, it, you know if it gives you a bit more confidence, that can become kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of uh, yeah. of the the that's the whole bad plan is better than no plan thing.
2: And my confidence in end games is has just soared right It went from zero uh, I would rather just not play an end game to let's do this. Let's trade to the end game. I've read Sheresheevsky, have you? uh and so that, that that feels really good to have um that thought going and now again that's that's online against other 1600s it'll probably be different when i'm you know back at a, a uscf tournament playing a 1900 and their answer is yes i have actually and i understood mm-hmm. it better than you did i'm like oh oh okay 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 so it'll be yeah fun. i mean
0: yeah <laughs> i mean and the book is beautifully instructive and actually like uh hearing you talk about that um Calls to mind during the world championship, you know, Fabiano did an amazing job with the team at chess.com. And there was one quote that he said that ended up getting clipped and being shared on Twitter and stuff. But he was talking about the evolution in his game in the past few years. And he said, even prior to the world championship, he generally felt like, at the margins he was trying to avoid end games um hmm. because he's he's known as a very concrete player he has amazing opening preparation and he's one of the best calculating players in the world um he's not known as much for like his his delicacy you know his subtlety in the way that he plays but he said he did a lot of work on his end games and he said prior to doing that he felt like um like his advantage was diminished as you went to an end game um or um but, after doing the work, he felt like it's actually the complete opposite that that the fewer the pieces on the board, the greater the advantage of the stronger player and obviously, that's something that Magnus has embodied in in his career. So to hear that at someone who's already you know obviously one of the best players in the world really really shines a light on just just how much you can learn from the end game and obviously, uh, for any listeners who didn't hear my interview with uh, Grandmaster Keith Arkell. Um, obviously a lower level grandmaster but has specialized in end games from the beginning and sort of built a career out of knowing his structures and you know eagerly trading queens and then just knowing he's going to beat whatever you know 2000 to 2300 player in his sleep once he, once uh once things are in an end game so that, yeah there's a there's a wide runway in front of you Kevin
2: it just long feels runway like i should say also end games are so knowable um middle games are this impossible mess that you're hoping to wrap your hands around with experience and understanding structures. But once there's less pieces on the board, I don't know. I just feel like theoretically I uh, I should be able to figure it out more easily. Uh um, yeah. And I know it's not but necessarily I mean, true, but, <laughs> but I'm trying. Yeah, it's
0: definitely not true. I mean, even again with the engine bar, um, <clears throat> when you when you watch the top games, I mean even the elite players are making mistakes all the time um it's a yeah it's a it's a dark art but it, it it's there's real subtlety and um you know real edges to be gained we have a quote here from a from Fred Wilson again i am now naming you fred the official book correspondent uh, of course uh you guys should if you're in new york city if you're passing through go visit fred wilson books near union square uh he's got a great collection i think he'll also be at, at amateur team east as the bookseller so if anyone's there, go say hi to Fred. But anyway, Kevin had been talking about the unique nature of this book and that most endgame books were, uh, he considered to be, again, more technical. And that got me thinking about like what what analogs there were to this. And I I felt at first like there were a ton of them. But then when I started thinking about it, and then researching it, I realized there aren't that many, and that was when I realized I needed to appeal to a higher authority like Fred. So, of course, there's a uh, there's again Capablanca's um, Capablanca's endings by by Chernov, um, which. I would say is a similar level, as Fred points out, um, but there's not that much else. Anyway, here is Fred's quote. He says, the only other endgame books, which we would call practical endgames, I can think of from that period is Practical Endgame Lessons by GM Edmar Medness. It was later slightly revised and corrected by Colin Crouch and reissued in 1992 as being by both of them. Medness also wrote several popular and, and very good shorter books published by Chess Enterprises during this time on Rook, Bishop, Knight. Practical Endgames. He and Benko were the main American writers at this time. While I'm at it, Shereshevsky certainly beat into my brain the concept of do not hurry, although certainly Keres talked about this much earlier in the Endgame article, The Art of the Middle Game. So some good insights from Fred there. Yeah, and again, that gets to what we were saying about none of this stuff was... 100% original likely, but in terms of like a distillation and compilation, it doesn't, doesn't get much better than this. And by the way, Kevin, I know that you've been also working on the Chesapeake course Timeless Techniques. Could you uh, share a little bit about um, what your experience with that has been?
2: Yeah, I found that to be a fantastic course that pretty much mirrors this book, but does provide sort of that bullet point information that I'm looking for. Uh, and so I really feel like these are great works to read together. I do this weird thing where I have one set of study time where I'm at a board with a book, and that was Endgame Strategy. And then when I would go to bed at night, that's uh, I have chessable or forward chess or something as I'm laying in bed for a half hour. So I would do Sherishevsky during the day, and then I would kind of cement it at night, laying in my bed with timeless technique. I would do that same section get a couple more bullet points. And so I'm getting these amazing annotations from Endgame strategy and then cementing with timeless techniques. So it's kind of interesting for me because these two books sometimes blend together in my head and I have to really figure out where they're separate. Um, but yeah, I, I can't recommend that course enough. It's amazing. It gives you, you know, that the, the chessable puzzle thing where, it's, you know, you, you go through the game and then they'll say, okay, remember that game you just looked at? Why, uh, what, what did they do here? Right, this was the critical moment. What, what was the reason they did this, and what they do? And uh, it was always embarrassing when I couldn't remember that move of the game I just looked at, but oftentimes I could get it. The funny thing though is, I did, I just clicked the review button because I finished the course and I didn't get any of them right. I missed like 28 in a row, and I'm going, hmm, okay, I don't know what's going on here, so I don't know what that means, Ben. Do I have to reread this whole course, or can I just accept that a random? question taking wildly out of context i'm not able to find the answer to
0: no one knows kevin we're all, we're all just making it up so <laughs> um but yeah i actually i i've i've read some of timeless technique red slash i know it's available in video as well by grandmaster sahaj grover and fm daniel barish um and yeah it's a great chessable version of Endgame strategy and of course Endgame strategy i mentioned there are a lot of classic games but you could consider that um you could consider that a weakness or a strength depending on how many times you've seen a bunch of these positions whereas uh, um, timeless technique being a, a modern work you know there's examples from Magnus and and so on so um, lots of lots of modern examples so um, if you you know again uh, end game strategy will be on chessable as well but if you can't wait to get some end game work in a timeless technique i would say it It's a similar target rating range, like you best suited probably to to sixteen hundred to twenty two hundred ish. But but every bit as as instructive. So definitely give that a shout out as well. Yeah, I'd say Um,
2: a little bit more accessible because of the bullet points. You can trick yourself easier into thinking (laughs) you're understanding the material than you can with Sharafsky.
0: Okay, well, there's no greater endorsement than than we could hope for than that. Um, so okay, least favorite things. Did we cover that, Kevin?
2: I do have one thing that I noticed. Um, uh, okay, so a couple things. The first one is what I've already talked about my brain and the way I work as an academic is I love having bullet point takeaways. It's what I loved about Shanklin's small steps book, right? He'd be like, Here's the takeaway, I'm going to show you the game. And then I'm gonna restate the takeaway, and I could go, Shanklin, I got gotcha. you. Uh, do I actually understand it? I don't know. But I read your bullet points. So that would be nice to have in this book. But then the other big one is there's no section on fortresses. And I don't know anything about fortresses. And I got to the end and I'm like, I know about end games. And then, you know, I was looking at uh, timeless technique and they had a very short section on fortresses. And I'm like, oh, wait, there's this whole, piece of endgames i don't have any idea what's going on so i don't know if that was um intentional or he just felt like it didn't fit into this style of book and maybe that's too technical uh, i i don't know
0: yeah i i don't know i mean you you can't cover everything you did praise the length of it so yeah exactly can't <laughs> can't can, can have it both ways but but um yeah fortresses i mean they're they're a pretty advanced concept i mean they might even be more advanced than most of the material in this book. So that might have something to do with it. But again, the, the updated version is going to have more material. So maybe, maybe Fortresses will be in it. Um As for my, uh, I, my least favorite, I mean, I really don't have a lot of gripes with this book. I mean, I do think as with a lot of uh books, um the, the earlier material in the book, to me, is the strongest. I don't know if there's some sort of fatigue that set in, but the, after the after the two bishops chapter, which is the the third from the last, I thought that was very strong. But the three to two queen side pawn majority and complex endings, I felt like, as Kevin said, it it's sort of uh it's sort of the what's left over type mm-hmm. mentality. So. That's like a very minor quibble. I mean, overall again, I, I love this book. The the writing's beautiful. It's like you know, I'm still in theory trying to get better at chess, but like even if I if that were dead and buried, I wasn't working on my game. This is a book I would return to again and again. Uh for the writing and the the classics alone.
2: Yeah. I think that last chapter, Complex Endings, he sells it as this is gonna be me putting all of these ideas together and this would be the moment for him to kind of add the bullet points in. Right. We talked about this. So here are these four things in practice, but instead what he does is just like, here's another awesome game. Okay. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Yeah, and it's come up before on the book reviews. These older books, they often just kind of drop the mic and leave the room.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, <no>, the <laughs> ending is hilarious. hilarious.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they just no summary whatsoever. Yep. You know. Um so, yeah, it's a common common issue and this one is uh is is no no exception. Um I did want to read one quote before we get out of here. I think we're almost done here. Uh Kevin, but just to give us a sense for the prose that I've been praising so much. So, uh here's a quote about uh uh, Smislav Aronin game, um, another famous game. So they say a mistake which shows how easily a certain win can slip away due to an incorrect valuation of an ensuing pawn ending. So Aronin made a mistake. And then in Aronin's defense, it has to be said that it was very difficult to see Smislav's brilliant defensive idea. Besides a player who is facing, faced, mobilizes all. Besides, a player who is facing loss mobilizes all his strength and clutches at the slightest chance, however improbable, like a drowning man at a straw. The player who is winning, on the other hand, is reluctant to seek saving chances for his opponent, especially if they are of a very difficult nature. Nature, Even great players have been known to relax in such a situation, and chess history knows of numerous similar examples." So, just very, very great evocative writing, and like there's there's a few where there's like a, not only an instructive end game but like an important historical moment in the context of uh of that end game so um yeah, just very little bad to say about uh about this book I mean to be clear, sorry, that game ended in a draw, not not a win um yeah. sorry, go ahead, Kevin.
2: I was just gonna say what a what a realistic quote that is. I do that all the time with. Ridiculous things. I'm like, oh, I've got an unstoppable mate in two. And they're like, really? What if I put my knight here? And they're like, okay. All right. I was a little too optimistic about my own. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, uh, (laughs) yeah. Like when I, it gets to my recent, uh, F master to I am episode where Evan Rosenberg was talking about how he'll commonly when he's winning a game he'll feel like oh this is over so I'm mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm gonna go get a burrito <laughs> then then I'll have three out of four. Yeah. You know?
2: I and, love that part of that you know? episode. He's narrating <laughs> yeah. the whole thing and then is the point I'm like really what if I do this? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, um. Okay. Well, sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. I was just
2: gonna say the last thing. I would say is this, if you read the first chapter and you think this book does not represent what it says it is like the first chapter is just poorly named the basic principles of end game play, because that's not what that first chapter is about. Don't let the first chapter scare you away. Read another chapter where there's actually a concept being talked about and go into it before you judge the book. Cause I judged the book on the first chapter at least four times and put it down. Because I I just was like this isn't doing what it claims it's going to do. There aren't principles here.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Because my recollection, again, it's hazy, but of the first time I read it, I just like it kind of rocked my world. I just I was just mm. like, wow, you know, this is, you know, again, putting language into so many concepts that I was vaguely familiar with, but didn't didn't necessarily have the words for, which made it a lot harder to sort of uh, implement or recognize these ideas. Um, so kevin like uh on a break we were talking about i always like to make a donation instead of actually paying you for your work uh pay someone else chess organization or something and you were saying you'll you'll leave it up to me
2: yeah Um, that sounds great i i realize i've listened to so many of these book recaps and i should have had that information on hand but but i do not
0: okay well we'll figure it out there's plenty of worthy chess causes actually um this will come out before an interview with uh, Elizabeth Shaughnessy of the Berkeley Chess School a few days before, um, but they're doing amazing work. I donated uh, just because I was impressed with her, but maybe I'll make another donation to them. A uh, shout out to Tunde who we've been donating to a lot, but Tunde of uh Chess and Slums is taking over the world. Pretty soon he's going to be donating to us. So. <laughs> um, although, uh, although he deserves all the success he has. It's amazing to see. But yeah, for listeners who hadn't heard, like Paris Hilton somehow gave a shout out to the Chess and Slums organization. Chessable is going to be doing more work with them. So it's uh, awesome to see. Tunde is an inspiring guy and uh, it's a great story. Um, And I'm sure we'll donate again in the future. Um, Okay, so listeners, um, I'm not going to do a blindfold puzzle uh, this time. Again, it's always a test to see how many people complain. So (laughs) we'll see. Um, Next month, we are going to do Under the Surface, one of my favorite modern chess books. I interviewed Grandmaster Jan Marcos um about a year and a half ago a very good interview if, if listeners haven't caught that one he's a fascinating like one of these guys who's clearly like on another level intellectually um so um but it's a classic book i mean especially i think amongst like the master to expert to master level sort of club player it's beloved by anyone who's read it um but it's but um Jan Marcos is a philosopher, so it's more philosophical in nature. So I'm going to be joined, hopefully, knock on wood, tentatively planned um, by Matt, um, Twitter, WMITTI on chess Twitter, stalwart, strong player, and uh, and national master Gopal Manon, possibly the strongest NM in the world and uh, font of chess information. So it should be a fun one. That's coming next month. But but before we wrap up, Kevin, you got to give your 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 most full-throated plug for the chess journey's podcast.
2: Okay, can can I start by giving a quick review of under this of under the surface? Oh, sure, yeah. I read that book quickly. Loved it. And I don't remember a single word of it. So. Yeah,
0: I'm kind of in the same boat. I've already read this one. I read it, you know, because I was interviewing him, and also it was like very high on my list of books I I hadn't read because of people like Go Paul and Matt uh, praising it. Yeah, and it's it's similar. I'll, I'll definitely need to reread it before next month, but I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, it yeah. It, it is. Yeah, you got to take notes as we were talking about. Yeah. we
2: recorded. I'm kicking myself like I, it was brilliant, and I don't remember a word of it. Hopefully, it's rattling well, around somewhere. Yeah, okay. and
0: hopefully the podcast will help.
2: Hopefully. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopefully it will. So, Chess Journeys. Chess Journeys is a podcast that I started inspired by perpetual chess. The Adult Improver episodes were so amazing that I thought, what if we actually captured the stories of the people who are struggling? Ben does such a great job of capturing people sort of at their peak and talking about how they get to that peak. And I, you know, am kind of stuck at 1600 and have been for a bit. And I thought, Uh, What if I talk to people on all ranges, some people who are at their peaks, some people who are below their peaks by significant margins, some people who are just stuck. It's basically a weekly podcast episode where I ask people about their journeys, what's working for them, what's not working for them. Um, Neil hosted the episode last time with me and he gave me some chest therapy. That was Neil Bruce.
0: Yeah, that was fun to listen to.
2: (laughs) That was a good time. Um, So, yeah, my, my uh, thought is just uh, I'm, I'm hoping to provide um, a, a service for the community where people can come and hear stories that maybe mirror their own and provide them with some uh, either glimmer of hope or some takeaways to help them on their own journeys because we're all trying to get better. And uh, many of us are struggling
0: yeah i always enjoy your your very gently couched criticism of the uh the super improver ethos which i think is very it's very fair as i've as i've mentioned in the past as someone stuck at 2100 myself um yeah certainly uh a plateau is the like I, as i mentioned to Neil, we were dming i listened, i enjoyed your intervention type interview with with neil and um and um I was just saying like a plateau is the norm. Like I know it's Mm -hmm. frustrating, but that's, that's the reality. And, you know, obviously I interview, uh, accomplished people and actually you've inspired me to, to be less stringent. You know, I, want to, I mainly want to make sure my guests are compelling, um, Mm -hmm. you know, more so than, than that, uh, they've had astronomic rating improvements, but, um, but yeah, definitely, uh, chess journeys is worth checking out. If you guys enjoy hearing other people in the chess struggle, um, so, thanks for thanks for uh pitching in Kevin. We will link to the pod and uh your Twitter and is there anything else we should link to?
2: Uh so I do stream sometimes. It's not real often. Uh I've resurrected my YouTube Dr. Skull a bit. I put my top 10 books from last year which you know, it's I, I read 18 books last year or parts of them. Are these and,
0: all chess books? or? Yes, yes.
2: These are all chess okay. books. And so I just kind of ranked what helped me the most. Remember, this is a 1600. And this is what helped me the most last year. Um, and, and I'm, you know, doing some more stuff with that. So you can uh, check out either of those if you want uh, to see me a little bit more often. I will warn you, my stream is not exciting. I just <laughs> go over so annotated hilarious. games slowly <laughs> and carefully and they take about an hour each. So uh, you, you might be bored. Just a warning.
0: Yeah, I heard you talk about that in one of
2: your your pods. where, where
0: You're not really, you, you're not looking to entertain people.
2: No, I'm a... doing chess improvement. And if you want to come improve with me, bring it on. If you come in and you're like, Kevin, this is the most boring thing I've ever heard. I will not dispute that.
0: Right. All right, I got, I love it. All right, well, thanks thanks again, Kevin. Maybe um maybe when the new one comes out at some point, we can do like a ten minute addendum and put it on another book recap because um because uh, I'm eager to see what they come out with. And part of the reason I didn't buy a new one. Uh, we, we I showed Kevin mine is like vintage I, you know I've had mine for 20 years or whatever is once I found out the new one was coming I was like well I'm gonna want that one so let me just stick with my old my old book and then I'll get the new one when it comes out so maybe we can do a quick update if you're up for it Kevin oh yeah definitely all right well thanks again listeners we will catch you all either next week or next month depending on if you're listening to the interviews in between uh book recaps take care everyone Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter at Perpetual Chess on Instagram and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com and of course, last but not least I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over over chess games answering questions stuff like that and you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference so but most of all thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode